everyone, and welcome to Emerging Trends in Higher Ed. My name is Samantha Wilcox, and I am your moderator for this podcast series. In today's podcast, Dr. Grayson Kimball, Program Coordinator of the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, Department of Psychology, discusses the field of sports psychology. Welcome, Grayson. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's jump in. Now, how did you first become interested in the field of sports psychology? So, a true story, way, way, way back in, I think, the summer of 1993, I was a camp counselor at my summer camp, and I was actually one of the coaches for the uh, uh, basketball team there, and we had a pretty talented team. I mean, we're talking, you know, these kids are eighth grade, ninth grade, a pretty talented team. And we had our first summer tournament and we lost and everyone was very disappointed. And we had our home tournament coming up about two or three weeks later. And at the, that time, I was a junior in college and I just started trying to do different things with the team because I knew all of these kids. I had been their counselors. And I just started doing little things that seemed to kind of help. And then, you know, fast forward about six months uh, I'm back at college for my senior year, and I'm hanging out with a couple guys on the basketball team. It was a Division One uh, college, and I'm hanging out with a couple guys in the basketball team. And one of them, I, I vividly remember, he looks up at the clock, and it's five o'clock, and he says, "Ah, we gotta go." I said, "Oh, where are you guys going?" And he said, um, "The coach has this meeting with a sports psychiatrist, psychologist, something. I don't know. You know, we won our first six games. We've lost our last six games, so the coach." wants us all to talk to someone. And that was the very first time I'd ever even heard the term sports psychology. So we're talking the fall of 1993, you know, was the first time I actually heard about the term. I ended up graduating, you know, in that that following spring, in the spring of 94. And I figured the next best thing, this sounds like an interesting field, let me look into it, found a graduate program in sports psychology, and then the rest is history. I love that. What a story. <laughs> That's the best. Um, now, where did you do your graduate work uh, in sports psychology? So I did my graduate work at Springfield College, uh, which is about an hour and a half uh, from Boston, an hour and a half west uh, from Boston. Uh, many people don't know or aren't aware of Springfield, Massachusetts, but when I tell them that it's the birthplace of basketball, where the Basketball Hall of Fame is, they say, oh yeah, I think I, I, I know Springfield. So uh, Springfield College is where actually the sport of basketball uh, was uh, birthed, and uh, that's where the Basketball Hall of Fame is, and that's where I ended up doing my master's and doctoral program in sports psychology. Excellent. Now, what were some of the initial challenges you faced when you started your career in sports psychology? So probably the, the biggest challenge that I had was even though I had a master's and a doctorate in sports psychology, it wasn't as, and then I moved out to Boston, it wasn't as simple as just sending an email to the Red Sox, the Celtics, and the Patriots, and the Bruins saying, okay, I'm here, hire me. Um, and so it, it, it really took a lot of time to network in, in, in the field, uh, make the right connections, start building a name for yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, it can get frustrating because you want to start working, but you're not necessarily going to start at the top, you know, in terms of those high-level athletes, you kind of have to work your way up. Absolutely. Have to really uh, set that ground floor first. Sure. Um, 
Now, once you got up and running, uh, what did you find to be most helpful as a new practitioner in the field? So I uh, had the ability to connect with a few more established sports psychology professionals in the Boston area, and they essentially served as a mentor uh, for me, just kind of giving me ideas of what I can do and how to network and um, you know people to contact in terms of setting up workshops. And again, this, it's all about networking and getting your name out there. And you know, not that I would meet with them weekly, but every couple of months I would just check in and. Every now and then, if they were just overloaded with a client or something, they might send me a new client here or there. Uh, and again, not that that necessarily sustained you, but it just you know allowed you to meet new people and to try to make make new contacts. So by finding these more established professionals, it really kind of gave me some some guidance in how to navigate the, the sports psych field, especially here in Boston. Absolutely. Now. Uh, there's a, a title or a role uh, that many people might not be aware of, but it's mental performance consultant. Um, what do you do as a mental performance consultant? Um, is there a way you can give us kind of a day in the life of that role? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, when people think of sports psychology, you know, the couple things that pop up are, you know, this is just for head case athletes uh, and it's only for elite athletes. And the, the, the term mental performance coach or mental performance consultant that really um, speaks to what sports psychology practitioners do, meaning that many practitioners in the field are not licensed psychologists. So very few people are legally a sports psychologist. They are, they are a sports psychology coach, a sports psychology consultant. Um, over the last probably three to five years, that phrase mental performance coach has become now commonplace. So many practitioners refer to themselves as a mental performance coach because we're not doing any type of you know psychotherapy, uh, psychoanalysis. Again, this is all performance-based uh, counseling that we're doing with the athlete. So a typical day in the life, uh, you know, I spend maybe sixty percent of my time teaching, uh, another twenty to thirty percent consulting, meaning, you know, working with, with athletes, and then about 10% of my time coaching. I actually got into uh, the world of marathon running when I moved to Boston 20-something years ago, and I've actually been coaching a couple of the charity teams for the Boston Marathon during our training season, which is typically November through April. Of course, this year, the marathon got tempor temporarily postponed. Um, so I spent some time doing some coaching where I'm able to work with all these runners from a psychological aspect, but I also help them uh, in terms of, of creating the actual physical marathon training program. Wow, that's very interesting. Now, you've touched on this a bit, but what are some of the misconceptions about the field of sports psychology? Uh, so I think one of the first things is, again, that it's only for you know troubled athletes. It's only for that, quote, head case athlete. What we actually find is that the athletes who you would never think about, that why would he need you know, a mental performance coach? They're the ones using a mental performance coach because they take an honest look at themselves. Okay, I'm here and I need to improve. And again, there may not be much improvement needed from where they are to their ceiling, but you know, I can only run so many miles and lift so many weights and you know, eat. there's something that's holding me back and it's typically that mental component. And so these athletes that have like this growth mindset, this open mindset that really want to get better they're the ones who are actually more receptive 
to using mental conditioning as opposed to the, quote, head case athlete who's always been told you're a head case. Right. That makes sense. Now, kind of looking back, you, you've you spent a lot of time in the field. Um, how has the field changed over the past 20 years? Um, I, I relate it this way. If you told somebody 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, that you were doing regular yoga practice, they'd look at you like you were from Mars, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody really believed in yoga. Nobody really knew yoga. Now, if you say to somebody, oh, I don't do yoga, they look at you like you're from Mars, like, oh my God, how can you not be doing yoga? I mean, just your flexibility, your strength and, and, and your mindfulness. It's great. It's fantastic. And that's because people learned about it, right? Yoga has been around forever, right? But people just didn't understand it. And sports psychology is really the, the same thing. The field of sports psychology actually dates back to the 1890s. Yet we think of sports psychology as something, oh, is this new? No, it's been around for a long, long time. And so in terms of what it's in terms of the changes, you see now sports psychology services not just being offered to the professional Olympic athletes. A lot of the work that I've done over the last 15, 20 years has been with youth sport athletes and not just private one-on-one consulting, um, but I've been a part of you know junior tennis academies, you know, baseball training academies where they do all that physical training, but now they incorporate the mental piece into it. So I think a lot of, you know, coaches and parents and the the athletes themselves, they're now starting to realize the benefits of adding in mental coaching. And it kind of gets back to the one of those misnomers that this isn't a sign that there's something wrong with me. This is just a sign that this is an area of my game that I need to improve. And so not only are you seeing sports psychology, you know, with younger athletes, sports psychology, mental coaching is become a huge thing with the military. Uh, A lot of uh, military bases are hiring uh, sports psych people full time uh, to work with their, quote, tactical athletes, Um, because, again, everything in that field, it's all performance based. And so we're just simply taking the principles of performance psychology, sports psychology, and applying it to the military. Um, I actually do some consulting work um, in the business world where, you know, it's, it's essentially executive coaching where I'm working with sales managers and, and, and other individuals who are in high performance jobs and still just need, you know, somebody to bounce ideas off of from a mental standpoint. So those have probably been some of the the bigger changes that I've seen in the field, you know, over the last 20 years, basically when when I started to where we are today. Excellent. Now I can definitely hear your passion um, when talking about sports psychology and I love it. Um, Can you share with us some of the most rewarding aspects of working in the field of sports psychology? Sure. So I think probably the most rewarding aspect would be when an athlete gets it. And that doesn't mean that they go out and they win their tennis tournament, right? Or they, you know, pitch a no hitter. It's when they can come back to you a week or two later and you can tell from their body language, verbal language, just the way that they're talking to you. They've actually listened during some of our sessions and you can tell that they've been applying some of this stuff. So even if they may have had a setback during a game or during a practice, they'll say, but I was able to overcome it by doing X, Y, and Z. And so to me, like that's the most satisfying that you're really making a difference. Now, the cherry on top 
is if they obviously win, like every athlete wants to win. But one of the main principles of, of sports psychology is to actually focus more on the process, what you're doing, not so much the outcome. And when you can get an athlete to actually shift from the outcome orientation to a process orientation, that's when you know that you've started uh, to make some progress. And to me, that, that is probably one of the more rewarding aspects. I love it. Now, uh, shifting towards North Central University, um, who may be interested in NCU's sports psychology program? Um, why would it appeal to them? Um, tell us a little bit more. Sure. So you're going to have people, I think, from all walks of life um, that are going to be interested in this program. So you may have people that are actually currently working in the uh, mental health counseling field. And although they're not doing any sport counseling, they may want to expand their practice. And so by having a master's degree in sports psychology, it opens up their clientele. And I say that because I've gotten calls from a lot of parents of kids that'll say, you know, my son or my daughter is currently seeing somebody for general anxiety, but they're also having sport issues. And the therapist that they're working with they're just not really trained to help them from a sport performance standpoint. So that could be um, the, uh, some types of individuals that might be interested. Um, even coaches, athletic directors, um, strength and conditioning coaches, physical therapists, athletic trainers, people who are trying to advance their careers. You have a background, a master's in sports psych, and you're a strength and conditioning coach, and you're applying for your next job be it with a college team, professional team. And you can say, not only do I have all these certifications in strength and conditioning, but I also have a master's in, in sports psychology. That's going to make you far more appealing as opposed to the other person who just has the same strength and conditioning credentials. Um, so again, a lot of people who work in the sports field uh, might benefit from this, uh, as well as people who are already working in the mental health field. Um, one other area we talk a lot about is professional organizations. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, some of the professional organizations that students can get involved with um, as it aligns with this program? Sure. So there is one main uh, professional organization, and it's the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, AASP. And so many people in the field just simply refer to it as ASP. And so they're essentially the, the governing body of sports psychology. And what that means is they're essentially the, the hub. So if anyone is, is interested in learning more about sports psychology, they, if they Googled it, you know, sports psychology ASP would be one of the first things that pop up. They hold their, their yearly conference. Um, they also have uh, more like regional conferences because clearly somebody living on the East Coast may not be able to travel out to you know, California if that's where the national conference is being held. So throughout the year, they'll have regional conferences where it's a great place to just network. And they also offer uh, a certification. Uh, and our program uh, is actually... Uh, meets the knowledge areas necessary to sit for certification. And that certification, it's known as the CMPC, which is the Certified Mental Performance Consultant Certification. That does not allow you to call yourself a sports psychologist. That just simply tells the public that you have extensive training from an educational standpoint and from an applied standpoint 
through your field work hours and the, and the supervision that you've been getting, uh, that you can sit for this uh, certified mental performance consultant status. Uh, and it, it, it just helps to separate people who are educationally trained to work in the field, as opposed to some individuals that say, I'm a psychologist, I like to play golf, I'm a golf sports psychologist. So, um, you know, there, there needs to be a, a little differentiation uh, between those who are uh, practicing and that have that education and the certification behind them. For sure. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. That helps a lot. Um, now, kind of looking forward, uh, what can students expect to do after completing their master's degree in sports psychology or what are some of those professional opportunities available to them? Sure, that, that's a great question. So, you know, going back to you know what I learned from day one is that you're not necessarily going to be working with a professional team the day after you graduate, but there are many things that you can do in, in, in the field. And I always tell students who just start a program and when, on, when they're on the verge of graduating, think outside the box. Think of all the people you know, the different contacts you have, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sport related because what we're seeing now in life is everything is really performance based. So again, if you know somebody in the sales world, you might be able to get in and, and maybe start doing this executive coaching, right? Because you're just taking all the principles that you've learned about through your program and just applying it to a different type of performer. So you can work in that area. Um, clearly, you can open up your own private consulting. Um, you know, you can look for positions at sports training facilities. As I mentioned earlier, one of the big um, uh, changes to the field over the last 20 years is a lot of these sports training facilities are now popping up because youth sports is just you know out of control in a good way and a bad way. Um, but the good way is that with all of these kids playing and all these club sports and club teams and, and specialized training facilities, they are all looking for that mental conditioning piece and I constantly, you know, when I'm just looking at, at, at some of the jobs that are popping up around the country, I see a lot of these uh, uh, mental conditioning specialists, uh, uh, the, these jobs being, being offered. Um, so I think there are a lot of different areas that a student can, can look into. And especially if these students are already coming from a particular sports-related job. So if somebody, again, is coming into the program as a coach, well, now they can not only do their coaching, they can also do the sports psychology maybe with their team now that they have this, this background. So there are, are plenty of different areas. Uh, many practitioners get into teaching full time. Uh, and a lot of that just depends on what they really want to do. So I really enjoy teaching. So I tend to do that, again, 60 to 70 percent of, of, of the time. Uh, and I do the consulting 20 to 30 percent. That's just the split that that I like. I have other colleagues in the field that teach 30% of the time and, and consult 70%. Uh, but I think it's important also for uh, practitioners who are coming through a program uh, just to be realistic in that, you know, you want to give yourself options when you graduate. So if you just say, I will only work with, you know, major league baseball teams, you're closing yourself off to like 98% of other opportunities out there. Well, sounds like a very, uh, really incredible field to be a part of. Um, and we thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, I think a lot of people will gain a lot of insight um, during this podcast.
Great. Thank you. I appreciate the time. We have additional episodes that will be shared in the coming weeks from others in the NCU community, so be on the lookout for those. And on behalf of Dr. Grayson Kimball, this is Samantha Wilcox, reminding you that at NCU, you have what it takes to change the world. We offer what it takes to make it happen. Until next time, goodbye.